0: The pain pain. All the blood, blood, all the
1: pain, pain. Hey Crime Sound listeners, I'm Ashley, and with me always is Ricky. Hey guys. This time on Crime Salad, we have a case for you that may remind you of some of your favorite horror movies or TV shows. That's because this case was so terrible that it's real events inspired and spun off some of Hollywood's best horror scenes. So the next time you watch a scary movie and you try to tell yourself that this kind of stuff doesn't really happen in real life, think again. While our past few episodes have been focused on more recent cases, the one we're going to be sharing with you today takes us back nearly 70 years. But despite how long ago these events took place, the legacy of Ed Gein's crimes lives on in popular culture today. The interest in Ed's crimes comes from their unique and gruesome nature. Many have attempted to dissect Ed's upbringing and psyche to better understand what led him down this dark and disturbing path. Our story starts on December 8, 1954, in Pine Grove, Wisconsin. Mary Hogan, a 55-year-old bartender, was finishing closing up the tavern she owned. While she was working, she didn't notice a mysterious man who was waiting very quietly outside the bar. When all of the customers had gone home for the night, the man casually walked inside and behind the bar to stand right next to Mary. Before she could respond, the man raised a 32 caliber pistol to her head and fired. Mary died instantly. The next day, when a local stops by the tavern, He sees a pool of blood and immediately calls the police. The investigators find some overturned furniture and they see a trail of blood that tells them Mary's body was dragged from behind the bar counter to outside, stopping in front where a car has been parked. Some witnesses note seeing a pale green pickup truck but aren't completely sure. A thorough search is conducted, but with no immediate leads on the truck, the mysterious man, or Mary, she is presumed dead. It is not until three years later that Mary's fate is revealed. The man's second victim is Bernice Warden, age 58. Bernice owns and works at a hardware store in Plainfield, Wisconsin, located only 10 miles away from Pine Grove, where Mary was taken. On November 16, 1957, Bernice is working in her hardware store as usual, and around 9.30am, one of her regular customers enters the store and quietly locks the door behind him. The man heads to the back of the store and grabs a 22 caliber rifle, which was being displayed on the wall. With a single bullet he had brought with him, the man loads the gun and fires the bullet at Bernice, killing her. He drags her body outside and into the hardware store's truck. Before taking off with her dead body, the man goes back inside and steals all of the money that was in the cash register for the day, only $41. The man locks the store back up and drives away with Bernice Warden, dead in the truck. When Frank, Bernice's son, stops by the hardware store to see his mother, he finds the store is locked. And the cash register drawer is left wide open. And there's lots of blood splattered around. And his mother is missing. Frank, who is also a Plainfield deputy sheriff, immediately begins investigating. He notices a receipt for a gallon of antifreeze written in his mother's handwriting on the counter by the cash register. Frank recalls a conversation the previous day he and Bernice had with a local man named Edward Gein. Ed was a 51-year-old, tall, lanky, unwed man who lived in Plainfield. He was a rather strange character around town, never quite fitting in, and largely kept to himself. Because he was so reclusive, it had stood out to Frank that Ed had struck up a conversation with his mother and son at the store. Frank remembers two important clues that were shared during this brief conversation— First, Frank told Ed that he would be gone hunting for the day, leaving his mother alone in the store. And second, Ed had mentioned he would be coming for a gallon of antifreeze. For Frank, Ed's mysterious and withdrawn character, the connection to the receipt for antifreeze, and his knowledge that Bernice would be alone all day, makes Ed Gein the prime suspect. Frank begins his search for Ed following a tip that his truck was seen driving around town. In an effort to hopefully find Bernice alive, they head straight to Ed's farm. Although the police had strong suspicions of Ed and were prepared to find Bernice's dead body on the farm, there was nothing that could have prepared them for what they were about to uncover at the Gein property. Bernice's body was found in a shed hanging from the ceiling upside down by her ankles. Her head cut clean off and sitting in a burlap sack nearby. Her stomach had been sliced open and she was being gutted in the same way one might gut and prepare a deer after hunting. Her heart had been taken out of her body and placed in a plastic bag. While what has been done to Bernice Warden is graphic and gruesome enough, It's only the beginning of the horrors the investigators would discover. As they move into the house, authorities find human remains throughout, decorating the walls, making up furniture, and fashioned into clothing. Skulls had been put into the corners of bedposts or turned into soup bowls. A pair of lips were attached to the drawstrings of blinds on the windows, and even a box of female genitalia was uncovered. There was a belt made out of human nipples. Four noses were found around the house, and many, many items were made completely out of human skin. There were lampshades, vests, leggings, a wastebasket, bracelets, and more. Among the carnage was the face, only the face, of Mary Hogan, the tavern owner who had been taken and murdered three years previously. Though it takes some time after Ed Gein is finally found, confronted, and arrested, he confesses to the murder of Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden, the only two murders that authorities can concretely connect to Ed. With the horrific findings at his house and the sheer amount of body parts, investigators worry that far more murders can be traced back to Ed. The heinous nature of the scene prompts further investigation into his life and crimes. So what turns a man to such depraved actions? When did he start doing these things and why would he? Well, the answer begins in Ed Gein's nightmarish childhood.
0: Edward Theodore Gein was born on August 27, 1906 in La Crosse County, Wisconsin to George and Augusta Gein. He was their second child, having an older brother named Henry. The two young brothers upbringing was anything but loving and nurturing. George was an alcoholic and had trouble holding down a job. Augusta was deeply religious, forcing strict puritanical beliefs on her children, controlling their choices and emphasizing the evils of women and drinking. She was antagonistic towards her husband, George, for his inability to keep a job and excessive drinking. She was verbally abusive and despite the hostility of their marriage, but due to her strong religious nature, the couple never separated. When the boys were young, the Gein family moved to a relatively isolated farm in Plainfield, Wisconsin, that Ed would come to inherit. Augusta believed the city to be full of sinners and she was pleased to live a more solitary and quiet life in the country. In Plainville, Augusta ran a grocery store and her two children were kept away from others. As a child, Ed only left the farm to go to school. Teachers remember him as a quiet and odd student. He didn't really have friends and Ed was frequently bullied at school. He was often ridiculed for a large growth on one eye. Despite his mother's intensity and strictness, Ed, as most children do, loved and idolized his mother. As his crimes as an adult came to light, his teachers recalled some of Ed's strange behaviors as a child, such as having random outbursts of laughter, but all in all, Ed seemed to be lonely, but a normal student and child. At home, Augusta saw to the children's religious education. She regularly preached about evil and immortality in the world. She read from the Bible every day, often the most graphic verses from the Old Testament. Augusta's narrow and dark view of life and temptations were impressed upon her children. Often discussed were her beliefs that all women, except for herself, were prostitutes, used by the devil to lead people astray, and also the inherent evils of drinking. This education continued well into Ed and Henry's adult lives. Mm -hmm. It's hard to imagine such a childhood as the ones George and Henry endured. From a young age, the boys witnessed their mother verbally abuse their alcoholic father. They lived an extremely isolated existence, leaving for only a few hours during the day for school. Though they were raised to be polite, they lacked the social skills and experiences to truly live full lives in society. And given their limited exposure to others, it would have been difficult to make friends, but this was compounded by their mother's scolding when they expressed interest in others. The power Augusta Gein had over her boys was absolute and terrifying. Between their isolation and the consistency of their mother's extremist teachings, It's clear to psychologists now that the Gein brothers were severely traumatized. In 1940 when the brothers were in their 30s and still living at home, their father George Gein died of a heart attack. Ed and Henry stayed on the farm and continued to help and support their mother. Needing to make money to support Augusta, they would often work around the town as handymen or babysit for the neighbors. Unsurprisingly, given their lack of socialization as children, Ed was often reported to relate to some of the children he watched better than adults could. As time went on, Henry began to express doubts about his mother's teachings and began to resent her treatment of them. He explained these feelings to Ed and occasionally confronted his mother. Despite how Augusta would shame, criticize, and mock her children for their perceived failures, Ed continued to deeply idolize and adore his mother. She was all he had ever known, and her control over his life was complete. Ed was completely devoted to his mother. On May 16, 1944. While Ed and Henry were working on the farm, a small brush fire began and quickly got out of control. Ed called the police, reporting that he had lost his brother in the smoke. However, when they arrived, Ed was able to direct them right to where Henry was laying dead. His head was covered in bruises, and despite the bruising, the coroner officially ruled the death an accident, stating the cause of death as asphyxiation from the fire's smoke. No further investigation was conducted, nor were any charges filed, and given the horror that was revealed at the Gein house 10 years later, many believe there is much more to Henry's death. He may have in fact been Ed's first victim. It's possible that Ed could no longer stand Henry's questioning of his mother. After the loss of his brother, Ed remains on the farm, living with his mother until she passes away a year and a half later due to a series of strokes. Having been relatively isolated for much of his life and with his only immediate family members dead, Ed was now completely alone. He boarded up his mother's room in the farmhouse, confined himself to live in a small subsection of the house. And while his mother's area remained pristine, the rest of the house was cluttered and disorganized. He continued to work on the farm, sold some of the land that his brother had previously owned, and occasionally worked on the roads in the town. Though he was familiar to the locals in Plainfield, Ed kept to himself. And it wasn't until after he was arrested and questioned in relation to the murder of Bernice Worden in 1957 that anyone suspected anything disturbing about Ed Gein.
1: After being arrested by the police for Mary and Bernice's murders and the discoveries at his property, Ed opens up about his past and how he acquired all of these bodies. He told authorities that over the last few years, he had traveled to three graveyards to dig up bodies during the night. He did this at at least 40 times in a reportedly dreamlike state. Ed estimated he experienced 30 instances of waking up from the dazed state in the cemetery, and during those times, he would recover the open grave and leave without taking anything. While most times he would leave the graves alone or fix what he had done while unaware, in about 10 visits, he admitted to removing the bodies or parts of the bodies of recently buried women. Investigators were skeptical though, believing that Ed had actually murdered the women whose body parts were found, but after exhuming a few graves and passing lie detector tests, they were able to confirm that while Ed had in fact robbed at least nine graves in Plainfield, he wasn't guilty of more murders. It appeared that the victims of these crimes were women that reminded Ed of his mother, Expert psychologists describe Ed Gein's crimes as resulting from his conflicting feelings about women. His natural sexual attraction towards them was pitted against a deep hatred of women that had been taught to him by his mother growing up. Along with these conflicting feelings, Ed explained that his actions stemmed from wanting to create a woman suit that he could wear. His unhealthy relationship with his mother and his isolation after her death resulted in a disturbing obsession with women. Witnesses to his interrogation described Ed as showing no remorse for his actions. He described things casually and without emotion. He explained to the detectives how he would wear the skin around his house. In both the cases of the grave robbing and murders, he reported being in a daze while committing these crimes. He had difficulty remembering specifics, but appeared to be aware that he was the perpetrator. It appeared that Ed may have had a partner which assisted with the grave robbing, a man named Gus. After Gus was too old to participate in digging up these graves, Ed had to resort to other means to satisfy his needs for new bodies, possibly leading him to the murders of Mary and Bernice. In the years since his arrest, psychologists, researchers, scholars, and more have attempted to understand how his childhood and family relationships could have contributed to turning Ed Gein into the Butcher of Plainfield. While it in no way excuses his actions, it leaves us with a more complex and troubling picture of this man. Though there was a confession and clear evidence of Ed Gein's involvement in Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden's murder, he was declared unfit to stand trial and confined to a psychiatric ward for care. While he was hospitalized, authorities continued to dig deeper into Gein's life and his potential involvement with other crimes in the area. In addition to the deaths and mutilations that Ed confessed to, he was investigated as a suspect in four other local missing persons cases in Plainfield, Wisconsin. There was 8-year-old Georgia Weckler, who went missing in 1947, and 15-year-old Evelyn Hartley, who went missing in 1953. Neither girl was found, and there were only limited clues in both cases. Additionally, in 1952, Victor Travis and Ray Burgess stopped at a bar for a few hours in Plainfield on their way out of town for deer hunting. After leaving the bar, the two men were never seen again. In such a small town, this number of missing persons cases was unusual, especially with so little evidence to help them be solved. Though it was hoped that with Gein's arrest, the families of those who had gone missing could find closure, but no link to Ed Gein could be established. Despite many other skeletons and bodies being found on Ed's property, the only cases that could be directly attributed to Ed were the murders of Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden. Ten years after being confined to a psychiatric institution, Ed was declared finally fit to stand trial. Due to financial limitations, the state only charges him with the murder of Bernice Warden. He is found guilty, though deemed insane, at the same time of the murder. Because of the insanity conviction, Ed was committed to Central State Hospital of the Criminally Insane to receive care. Because of the insanity conviction, Ed was committed to Central State Hospital of the Criminally Insane to receive care for his mental health. Once committed, Ed continued to be a quiet and shy man. The staff in the institution reported that he was an ideal patient, never causing any trouble. In 1974, he petitioned for release, but it was denied. Ed lived out the remainder of his days, institutionalized at the Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin, until he developed lung cancer and died of respiratory failure in 1984. Since his crimes were discovered, people have been simultaneously fascinated and terrified by Ed Gein and his story. A few months after his arrest, Ed Gein's home burned down. Arson was suspected. When Ed heard about this, he was pretty much unfazed by the loss of his home. The police must have felt the same, perhaps even that it was deserved, as the perpetrators were never caught that same year his truck which had been used to move bodies was sold in an auction it was bought by bunny gibbons who ran a sideshow charging 25 cents for visitors to see the truck which was driven by the murderer himself after his death in the mid 80s ed was buried in the plainfield cemetery his gravestone was frequently vandalized with people breaking off chunks. And in 2000, it was stolen completely and turned up a year later in Seattle. It now resides in a Washara County Museum. Given the shocking nature of the crimes, it did not take long for Ed Gein's story to become embedded in popular culture. Norman Bates from Psycho is one of the most well-known psychopathic characters in horror. Bates, like Ed Gein, killed in the name of devotion to his mother. In The Silence of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill is killing women to collect their skin and body parts in order to create a woman's suit. Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Bloody Face in the second season of the television show American Horror Story also draw influence from Ed Gein. Even a biographical musical was put on in 2010 about his life and crimes. Ed's legacy is one both of horror and gore, but also immense trauma, isolation, and sadness. It's no surprise that his story is still being told today. This concludes this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe so that you get notifications when the next episode is out. Thank you for continuing to leave supporting reviews and spreading the word about Crime Salad.
0: Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. All the blood. Blood. All the pain. Pain.
1: All the blood. Blood.